Let's go ahead and get started. I want to welcome our visitors and those online who are listening today. Let's begin with prayer. Praise Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, another Sabbath day. We thank you for giving us this day and what it represents, uh, what it represents about your character. Please guide our study today as we learn about the sacrifice that your son made and the sacrifice that all of heaven made uh, on that day on the cross and how it is uh, was designed to win us back to acceptance and to trust in your character and your love. See, saints, in the name of Jesus, amen. We're studying Lesson 10 today. It's called Atonement at the Cross. Did anybody study this week's lesson? Okay, see a few hands. This lesson makes a lot of assumptions that I don't agree with. And I kind of find myself getting more frustrated by the week with the direction that the quarterly has taken. So um, I apologize in advance. Let's just examine the title here, Atonement at the Cross. Any thoughts on what that means? Someone would look at it as a payment. The lesson looks at it as a payment. We have examined the word atonement forward and backward uh, in here, and I subscribe that it means to become at one or in unity or to be reconciled with. So we're going to approach this lesson with the idea that we became reconciled with God. That started the process of becoming reconciled with his methods, his principles, his uh, government, and that happened when Christ laid down his life and demonstrated the love and the patience and the unselfishness that the, that the government of God is based on. Someone read the memory text, please, for Sabbath's lesson. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's in Colossians 1.13. 13, 14. Uh, any thoughts on this, this text? Seem pretty straightforward? Yeah. Just to me. What does it mean to be rescued from the dominion of darkness? He brought us light. He brought us light. What does that mean? I think light usually is equated with truth. Okay. Darkness with lies. And... Correct. <laughs> so humanity was was living up until that time, not completely without truth, because the... <laughs> There were numerous uh, Old Testament prophets and, and, and people in the Old Testament that had a very good idea of who God was and his, his ways and methods and principles. Uh, he was taken to heaven. So was Elijah. Isaiah understood it. Moses understood it. So there were numerous folks in the Old Testament who were not living in the dominion of darkness. Yet, they were still under the, quote, curse of death um, as started when Adam and Eve fell. Next, someone take the just the for the two paragraphs in Sabbath's lesson. The man sued a fast food company. A man sued a fast food company claiming that his obesity and the health problems that he fo- that followed from it resulted from his four or five meals a week at the fast food restaurant. He blamed the company, not himself, for his problems. We all tend to be like that, though, blaming others for our misdeeds. But God does not have excuses. He considers each one of us accountable for our sins. However, here is where the mystery of atonement begins to appear in its beauty. If we assume responsibility for our sins and have true faith in Jesus, God is willing to forgive us those sins. 
When we acknowledge our responsibility, we are liberated from the penalty of our rebellion. What happened to that penalty? God did not overlook it. No, instead he allowed it to fill, he allowed it to fall on Jesus. And Christ's experience of that punishment will be our theme this week. Thoughts? <laughs> Comments? Suggestions? Well, the first thing that bothered me in it, it says, if we assume responsibility for our sins and have true faith in Jesus, God's willing to forgive us. It doesn't say that we repent. That's exactly where I started my highlighting. Yeah. I had I took issue with that as well. And God is willing to forgive us whether we do that or not. Oh, what? No, you don't. Where does that come from? He is anybody. He's our goodie for giving us. Comes from Scripture. Thank you. Yes, of course. This is pagan. This is this is implying that uh, we have to do something first to get God. To, okay, they've taken the steps. I'll forgive them. Which is also the myth of forgiveness, even with human relationships. Yeah, exactly. That's what we think about when we deal with others. And it's, it's a mistake. It's 180 degrees backwards. When we forgive someone who's wronged us, it's for our benefit, not for theirs. If they've wronged us, then, then they have a whole other process to go through. They have to acknowledge that they've wronged us and seek forgiveness. And only when the wronged person has truly forgiven and when the person who's done the wrong has truly repented, that's the only time the reconciliation of the relationship can happen. And that's when we forget that uh, wronging an individual doesn't hurt them as much as it does hurt us. Right. right. There's a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of, of sin itself. And I think this whole lesson deals with sin as a thing. A commodity. Yeah. To be traded and bought and sold. and mm-hmm. Instead of a horrible thing that's happening to our minds and our hearts. Right. Instead of an illness. <laughs> Where do you start? Exactly. I mean... What's that? It says in the bottom there, he allowed it to fall on Jesus. I'm just wondering how he could do that. He allowed, oh, what happened to that? Okay, when we acknowledge our responsibility, we are liberated from the penalty of our rebellion. Do you think they stopped short of saying that God punished Christ? I mean, it is hugely implied because mm-hmm. there, there is no other bringing of the penalty. It is implied. I think there's a spot later in the lesson where they back off from that. Yeah, um, yeah. But, mm-hmm. yeah, certainly the implication here is that... You can't indicate the one whose law was broken brought about a penalty without saying that that's, who enacted, that's the person who enacted it. Right. But even even this uh, statement of the sentence, when we acknowledge our responsibility, we are liberated from the penalty of our rebellion. If I went out and shot someone this afternoon, took their life, and in a fit of remorse, I said, oh, I acknowledge I've done something wrong. Am I then liberated from the penalty of that rebellion? No. Your, your mind is still going to be very um, hurt by something that you've done. Of course. And not only that. I'm going to be a, a fleeing felon. You know, my, my penalty to society uh, has not been suspended or liberated. The damage that's occurred in my heart and mind and character is done. Now, that doesn't mean it's irreparable. But the damage has been done. And I'm going to be allowed to, to suffer the consequences of my choice and my behavior. Both within yourself and for the community. Yeah, internally and externally. I'll have to pay a debt to society. I don't like that term. You know, I've broken the law of the land, 
and if convicted by a jury of my peers, then I'm going to receive a life sentence or a death sentence. And the, the damage that occurs internally is, again, potentially irreparable, but you know, I believe there are lots and lots of convicted felons in, in prison who have gained an, an understanding and insight as to the damage that they've done uh, not only to society but to themselves and have repented of that and stand forgiven. Not because they've prevented, not because they've repented, but because they've acknowledged it and, and begun the healing process. They're still in prison. They're still paying the consequences for what they did. And this idea, you know, that we're liberated from the penalty of our rebellion, um, I can't agree with. And I don't think that that penalty was transferred to Christ on the cross. It just doesn't make sense. Any other thoughts? No, it doesn't fix it. Correct. Right. Yeah, there's no healing that occurs. You have atonement, a one have to have real one. Reconciliation, correct. Well, I, when I was studying, I'm not quite sure what they're referring to the penalty, because when you go to Wednesday's lesson, and it talks about the penalty, mm-hmm. and it says the real penalty God suffered for our sins was the sundering of the divine powers. Mm-hmm. Ellen White is taking us inside the mystery relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right. I want to get to that shortly. Again, I don't like the term penalty. Yeah, I don't think this word penalty is referring to the real penalty that is talking about on Wednesday's lesson. I don't. Mm -hmm. I think he uses that word almost too freely. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. When you hear penalty, you think that... um, when they're playing football, someone's broken a rule, and they get penalized yardage. Or in basketball, someone's committed a foul. They've committed a penalty, so now they get the chance to score more points. All right, Sunday's lesson. This is talking about Christ's struggle in Gethsemane. Someone read Matthew 26. 37 and 38, someone else take Mark 14, 33 and 34. Yeah, just those two passages. Matthew 26, 37 is this. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Grief and anguish came over him. And he said to them, the sorrow in my heart is so great that it almost crushes me. Stay here and keep watch with me. He took Peter, James, and all along with him. He began to be deeply disturbed, distressed, and troubled. My soul is... Overwhelmed with sorrow at the point of death, he said to them, stay here and keep watch. Okay, the lesson goes into some uh, examination of the Greek that this is written in, of which I'm clueless, so I don't, I'm not going to delve too deeply into that. But let's, let's look at what's happening here. Christ had communed closely, closer than any human that ever walked the planet, with his father for 30-odd years now. And... I think that up until this point, he had never known fear, a real fear. As a five-year-old, he may have been afraid of some, you know, a noise in the night or something, but I really, really don't think he had known that, that true fear and selfishness that we struggle with. And correct me if, if you've got evidence to, to refute me. This is a personal opinion of mine. Um, and going into the garden, he's, he's beginning to experience the withdrawal of the presence of the Father that he's communed with, and he's beginning to be afraid. 
Thoughts? Does it make sense? I'm not up here for you guys to just uh, agree with me. If you've got a difference of opinion, I'd love to hear it. I've often wondered if, I mean, I know he was because it says he was tempted in the wilderness, but it, it's all been confusing to me as to how any of those temptations that Satan put before him in the wilderness about the bread or casting himself off a rock would be tempting. Mm. But they had to have been. Right. Um, well, they were all temptations. He used his power to preserve himself right. or to acknowledge that the Satan was... They were tempted because of who he was. Right. And right. for his human side, they had to be temptations because they would be for, for anyone. No, I, I understand what you're saying. Other than the bread thing, after you had not eaten or drank anything for 40 right. days, uh, I can see being tempted to turn yeah. a rock into, into a nice hot loaf of... Uh, Macaroni grilled bread. Yes, with the olive. With, yeah, obviously with the olive. Well, that goes without saying. <laughs> exactly. He had that power. Well, sure he could. But he came as a. Yeah, but. It's hard for me to understand all that too because God knew who, Christ knew who he was, even though he came as an angel of light. Yeah, he did. So, I don't, I don't understand that. Me neither. I think, I think he probably felt selfishness or temptations to save self or promote self before then. But I understand what you're saying about the fear. And again, I don't think the fear was, I don't think it was as much the physical. You know what I'm saying? I think he knew exactly what was going to happen physically. But I don't think that's where his anguish came well from. Well said. That leads me to a nice segue here. This is from the Desire of Ages from the chapter entitled Gethsemane page 686. With the issues of the conflict before him, Christ's soul was filled with dread of separation from God. Satan told him that if he became the surety for a sinful world, the separation would be eternal. He would be identified with Satan's kingdom and would never more be one with God. The next page, 687. And what was to be gained by this sacrifice? How hopeless appeared the guilt and ingratitude of man. Uh, in its hardest features, Satan pressed the situation upon the Redeemer. The people who claim to be above all others in temporal and spiritual advantages have rejected you, referencing the Israelites. They are seeking to destroy you, the foundation, the center, the seal of the promises made to them as a peculiar people. One of your own disciples who has listened to your instruction and has been among the foremost in church activities will betray you. One of your most zealous followers will deny you. All will forsake you. Christ's whole being abhorred the thought that those whom he had undertaken to save, those whom he loved so much, should unite in the plots of Satan, this pierced his soul. The conflict was terrible. Its measure was the guilt of his nation, of his accusers and betrayer, the guilt of a world lying in wickedness. The sins of men weighed heavily upon Christ, and the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. Thoughts on this passage? I mean, there's, there's language in here that um, we could struggle with. Well, this is where we get the assumption that he was he was weighed down by all the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. Sins, plural, instead of and, sin, singular, sickness. Uh, but she mentioned one of the things you said was the rejection of the Father, or the rejection of what was the what was the phraseology? The rejection of. Let's see. 
the separation of God will be eternal. He would be the separation. Separation. separation of God would be eternal. So basically, the lesson here says the results. He he says we have to conclude that this is the the reason for all this physical and emotional state of Jesus is because it's a result of bearing the world's sin. Again, this same idea that I've been always taught. You know that the the weight of the sin is just bearing down on him. But she does use a phraseology in there about guilt. So what does that mean when she's talking about guilt? Okay. Last. It is in the context of what Satan was telling Christ. So therefore it might not be true. Isn't that, didn't what you read, wasn't that some of it? Yeah, this is what Satan was presenting to Christ. Right. Okay, well, I think Christ was experiencing what the wicked will experience in the end when God finally gives them up. <laughs> Where's my text for that? Well, he, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Right. And in this quote you were mentioning, he, he was experiencing God's wrath. And on the cross, we feel that his wrath is that he first he was separated. Yeah, God didn't intervene. Okay, now the same thought. <laughs> Go to Wednesday's lesson on the cry because it's what it says. Okay, we're going to fast forward to Wednesday's well, lesson. Because it ties in so close to Tuesday. Good. It says, on the cross, Jesus was suffering intensely, but so was the Father. Yes. He was in Christ. Consequently, the omnipotent God suffered with his Son. And that's from Sister White, the upper book. And then it says, one could even say that God himself was crucified with Christ. For Christ was one with the Father. That's from Ellen G. White's Signs of the Times. Yes. So my thing is this. If God is one with the Father, and he suffered with Christ, then how? why would Christ say, my God, my God, why has that forsaken me? It, it says right here that God himself was crucified with Christ. For Christ was one with the Father. Okay. He still had human nature. Did you hear that? Yeah, he had human nature, but... Did God suffer because he was separated from the Son? Yeah, parents, th this should be a no-brainer. Who do we think suffered more that day? Well, I've done a lot of stuff with my kids, but I've never heard my kids say, Why have you forsaken me? Have you forsaken them? No. Okay. But neither did God forsake Christ, apparently. But Christ said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken but what me? But whatever. That That's the human it's part. Man, he had to separate from him, or Christ could not have died. I'm sure if your child was hanging on a cross bearing the sins of the world, like I know if I was there going through all this excruciating pain, I would feel as though my mother sitting right here had forsaken me, even though she wouldn't have an actuality and she's w suffering. But doesn't it say somewhere that God also had to turn his face because he couldn't, all this sin that was on his son, it's not like he was actually forsaking him, but I'm sure Christ felt that. Okay. I don't Bye. think it was because of sin on this side of we we, as we've been talking, but the two things that I can think of are that, number one, God gave him over to what his choice was. Yes. To go through with it. Yes. Thank you. And then number two, um, and I asked him about this after class a few weeks ago, specifically about the forsaking. If, if Christ hadn't done anything wrong, what was... 
the interpretation of that withdrawal. And, and he's, he's also confirmed what has been said about Christ couldn't have died. It, was, it would have been impossible for him to die. Right. I mean, literally, God, is the, God had stayed there. He's the, he's the only source of life in the universe. He's the only reason we're alive. And if he decided to withdraw that source of life for whatever reason, and I'm sure that was every bit as painful as watching his son die. I mean, to parents, think about it. I'm not a parent, and I only I have a tip of the iceberg concept of it. How difficult would it be to watch your child be nailed to a, a cross and spit on and cursed and whipped? and Especially when you got the power to... Yes. Yeah, especially when, when everything about your character wants to intervene. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Of it is, is imagine it's not only your child, but it's his siblings that are doing it. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Thank you. Imagine it's your other children that are that are doing this. That's why Christ said, "Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing to their own character." But that's another reason why we can't even understand His love, because we think love means take Him off the cross. Yeah, but and save Him. Right. Meant to let Him go. Let Him. Take the path that he had chosen, because Christ chose That was in the plan that they had talked about years and years ago. Right before the world was created, this this was this was planned. For us, I don't. We don't know the future. You know, sometimes bad things happen to us, and and we get hit suddenly with it. But what if we knew every bad thing that was going to happen to us all through our life and for the dread? Yeah. <laughs> so we come up to the actual point that you discussed and decided on or something that happened. You come up to the actual thing. You know what's going to happen, and you don't do anything to prevent it. Right. That would be tempting to prevent it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know, in that case, you know what's going to happen on Sunday morning. But not only did they not do anything well, to prevent it, every single thing they did from the foundation of the earth after they fell was to accomplish it. Mm-hmm. To make sure that it came to pass. Whether it was putting God's people to sleep that's right. or that's right. Or destroying the whole world. Or, yep, or meaning with a flood or mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Well, let's back up to Sunday's lesson. The Third paragraph says, although no specific reason was given for the physical and emotional state of Jesus, through the light of the New Testament, we can conclude that this is the result of bearing the world's sin, not from fear of what humans would do with him, would do to him. Any thoughts? No? Okay. I don't agree with that. <laughs> what don't you agree with? I don't think that um, the physical and emotional state of Jesus was because of dreading to bear the sin of the world, it was dreading to be separated from his father. Okay. But knowing Can we, is, it, is it a quantum leap to, to suggest that being separated uh, from the father and bearing the, quote, sin of the world is the same? And Tim's talk about bearing... <clears throat> The world's sinfulness, right. the weight of the condition, and this is this is where the battle between survival of the fittest and <clears throat> beneficent love took place. This is where he was purging it from the human race. I mean, I, that's what contributed to his physical and emotional state. Is this was the battle between saving self and giving self? Right. 
Now this is a lot of effort he's going through to mm -hmm. come down to this earth. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of the anguish is coming from knowing that most everyone is going to reject him on this earth. Even after all this, he's doing. It's possible. Only a precious few will accept. Isn't that what sin is? Essentially rejecting God, separating yourself from God, choosing to follow someone other than God. And then all the manifestations of that are just <laughs> symptoms of the basic cause. You know, that you are no longer connected to God. You've chosen to go your own way. And wouldn't that cause a lot of anguish? There's a passage in one of Ellen White's manuscripts, and I couldn't find it. But um, it suggests that not only did Satan present the, the idea that mankind was rejecting him, and mankind would reject him, would reject the sacrifice, but he also tempted Christ to, that it was too early for, the, for him to die, that he still had a lot of work to do. And, you know, was, was he going to really leave the, the, uh, the work yet to be accomplished in the hands of the, you know, the boneheads that are sleeping right, over, right across the way? It, it, Christ was tempted to continue his, his good work. The Greeks had come over and asked him to come over. Yeah. I mean, he's being tempted to, to continue his ministry. I mean, how how subtle is that? I mean, we can't, I can't possibly understand uh, with the barrage that, of temptations that Christ was hit with. And I've, I've mentioned this several times in here before that, you know, when I'm tempted, it's usually over pretty quickly. <laughs> You know, cry, cry. I, I don't. I don't experience the full weight of the temptation of Satan. He doesn't have to work very hard. Christ experienced that a repetitive and escalating and exponentially uh, stronger temptations each time, and I uh, frankly can't comprehend it. In the last part of the paragraph uh, on Sun, in Sunday's lesson, uh, there are several places in this lesson where the author uses the word should uh, have been ours or should be you or something like that. And I'm more comfortable substituting the term would. Uh, for example, in the last two sentences, in uh, he's talking about, again, the sorrow and the, the struggle in Gethsemane. In this particular case, the intensity of the sorrow was bringing Jesus to the borders of the second death. He was already starting to suffer the fate that should have been ours. Uh, I think it makes more sense to say that he was already starting to suffer the fate that would have been ours. Thoughts? Well, it seems like to me this whole quarter so far has been on trying to make us feel guilty. Exactly. You know, when you know, we are guilty, we are guilty of sin. There's no question about it. Absolutely. But I don't think solving the problem is making us feel guilty. What choice did you have in being born a sinner? There. <laughs> Come on. But I mean, I had no choice exactly. in being born a sinner. We have been taught pretty much my whole life that my sins, my acts, transgression of the law, mm -hmm. nailed him to the cross. Yep. And continue to each time I choose. Yep. Crucifying him and over and over again. Nonsense based on what I've learned in this class. Amen. He went to the cross. Willingly, no one could take his life. There's no way I could have nailed him to the cross. 
And well like said. I said, there is no there is no guilt or condemnation on me for his death on the cross. He he went there voluntarily. It's just it's nonsense. I think where where Correct. it might be coming from is that Jesus said uh, talking about which one feels more love, one who's been forgiven much or one who's been forgiven less. And the obvious conclusion is the one who's been forgiven much would love more. Mm -hmm. And so maybe the lesson is promoting, look how much you are forgiven and how much God went through to, to solve your, your issue. And that should make us even more in love with God or grateful to God because they're pressing on how sinful you are. Well, basically what we can say is Christ didn't die for our sin. He died for sin. He didn't die for our individual sins. Sins, yeah, plural, he died, yes. He died for the sin that's in the world. Our, our, our infection. To heal, yeah. to heal us. Yeah. In the back? Um, how about if we look at it from the standpoint of God saying, this is what I'm willing to do to prove to you how much I love you. Amen. Any thoughts? That's just another way of revealing his character. Right. It was proving that he was trustworthy with the power and that the fact that he had it and didn't use it. To didn't use it to save himself. And also it fully unmasked Satan <clears throat> and his perspective on God. You know, while, while Satan was in heaven, God didn't extinguish his life. But ever since Christ was born... Satan spent the whole time trying to kill him off, mm -hmm. showing that he would kill even God to get where he wanted to go. Mm -hmm. You guys ever wondered why crucifixion, the method of death preferred by the Jews? The Jews are the ones that say crucify him. Why not behead him? Why not um, stone him, drown him? Beg your pardon? Wasn't the Jewish law that said it, he should be stoned for blasphemy? For blasphemy. In other places in the scriptures, it says, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Cursed is he who's hung on a tree. That's correct. Um, it was a Roman method of execution. It was acceptable at that time. What? It brings fear. Stoning was Jewish. Okay. And it's humiliating. I mean, ultimately exceedingly torturous and humiliating way of dying. Yes, sir. But isn't there somewhere, I'm trying to remember where, where there's a reference to <clears throat> pagan worship about things being on a tree? In Scripture? Yeah. Um, there may be. I'm not familiar with that. It's similar to when they talk about the things up on the high hill. Right. I have often wondered, and I've, I've delved into this a little bit, and I don't have ironclad references or anything, but... The practice of human sacrifice had supposedly been abandoned by the Romans because they were an advanced civilization. Uh, human sacrifice to their gods had, had been abandoned except for criminals. They often sacrificed criminals to their gods. And who was on either side of Jesus? Two thieves, two criminals. I have long thought that Satan considered it a sacrifice to him, a human sacrifice to him. Whether that's what the Romans intended or not, I don't know. But I'm sure Satan accepted it as a human sacrifice. I would imagine Satan accepted it. I shouldn't say I'm sure of that. 
Well, I'm sure he also had in mind distorting the Christian faith and keeping that little pagan element of payment. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. He has been crediting God with his own uh, character attributes since time immemorial. All right, let's move to Monday's lesson. Midway through the first paragraph, he's talking about Christ's, what he's experiencing and dealing with the cup, the, the like this cup metaphor, the cup of God's judgment and God's wrath, and let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but thy will. Uh, he was experiencing loneliness, the abandonment of the disciples, and particularly the abandonment of God. He sought the company and support of the disciples, but didn't get it. And now, all by himself, he asked the Father not to forsake him. The answer came back to him from within the darkness of divine silence was, quote, there is no other way to save the human race. Uh, Jesus voluntarily acquiesced to the will of the Father. Uh, getting to this complete abandonment theme here, I'm going to read Luke 22, verses 39 through 44. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Okay. Had God completely abandoned Christ at this point, he sent an angel. White says it's the angel that took Lucifer's place, dispatched to comfort and, and support. Is there some indication that he would have died right there if that angel hadn't come? Uh, again, uh, it comes from the desire of ages. Uh, I think she mentioned that. Thoughts? I see some perplexed faces. I will read from the Desire of Ages. This is page 693. The world's unfallen, and the heavenly angels had watched with intense interest as the conflict drew to its close. Satan and his confederacy of evil, the legions of apostasy, watched intently this great crisis in the work of redemption. Powers of good and evil waited to see what answer would come to Christ's thrice-repeated prayer. Angels had longed to bring relief to the divine sufferer, but this might not be. A way of escape was found with the Son of God. In this awful crisis, when everything was at stake, when the mysterious cup trembled in the hand of the sufferer, the heavens opened and light shone forth. Amid the stormy darkness of the crisis hour, and the mighty angel who stands in God's presence, occupying the position from which Satan fell, came to the side of Christ. The angel came not to take the cup from Christ's hand, but to strengthen him to drink it. With the assurance of the Father's love, he came to give power to the divine human suppliant. He pointed him to the open heavens, telling him of the souls that would be saved as a result of his sufferings. He assured him that his father is greater and more powerful than Satan, and that his death would result in the utter discomfiture of Satan, and that the kingdom of this world would be given to the saints of the Most High. He told him that he would see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied, for he would see a multitude of the human race eternally saved. Thoughts on that passage? What kind of power did the angel come to give him? I don't know that the angel came to give him any power. Maybe the power of truth. Yeah. No hope. Hope. Truth. Okay. He strengthened him so he could make it to the cross. <clears throat> it was not their desire to die right there in the garden. Mm -hmm. 
he had to go through the rest of it. And the question is, why did he have to go through the rest of it? To show Satan's real character. Why did he have to go through the rest of it? Why did he have to go all the way to death? Like the beatings and the trials and... I think that played a big part of it, to show that when Satan had control, what he did. Okay, so it was partially to reveal... Into the universe, the not just to us. Government of, had to see the character of Satan. Government of Satan. Yeah. Okay. Why else? <laughs> okay, it was prophesied that he would die on the cross, which leads us to question whether or not, did Jesus die just to prove himself right in <laughs> prophecy? Or did he know what would happen, so he prophesied it ahead of time? Either way. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are some fundamental differences between the two. <laughs> prophecy is important in the Bible. Prophecy is important in the Bible. What's important about prophecy? Why is prophecy important? Is it important because God intervenes to prove himself right because he's said it before and he doesn't want to be wrong? Or is prophecy given because God knows the end from the beginning and he gives us uh, an insight as to what is going to happen so that we can be prepared? Also, we can be encouraged when it does We can believe It's evidence that he's trustworthy. Okay. And it gives us more uh, awe for a God who undoubtedly now knows what all was going to happen and went ahead and created Satan and went ahead and created the earth and went ahead and created us and went to the cross for us. Mm -hmm. We know because of these evidences that he knew all along and still did it anyway. Really? I mean, when he knows all the suffering that's going to go on, you know, that we have no idea of living in our nice, comfortable lives in America. I mean, whatever we sense here is nothing like what most people deal with around the world. True. Help me understand how he's more awesome for creating and allowing all of that. It's choice to occur. It's, it's choice he gives us. Well, it's not truly choice, though, because people that are born in these lands where there is no freedom, where they have no food, they have no homes or anything. It's not their choice to be born there. And, you know, they have to suffer as a result where they live. Maybe it's not, not them directly, but somebody chose before them. Well, yeah. Made it that way. Well, before them, that was, too. That was pure freedom, pure life of years. And that created these things. Because one of Satan's allegations is that God is controlling. He's capricious. He, is, he wants to run you like a puppet. And in the evidence is that we do see the result of our own choices or of other people's choices, that God doesn't control you, that you he's given you gifts and powers and so on within your own realm, and how you choose to use them will have consequences. And he doesn't force you to love him, doesn't force you to do anything, but they will have consequences. You know, if he went around taking away all the consequences of everything we did, I mean, I have a, I have a close relative who dislikes God immensely because he, she feels like if this is a good God, how could he allow all of this to happen? And yet, and she's an attorney, you know, and yet she would hate a God who would control her, but she wants a God that will control you and you and you. She wants a God that will make you do the right thing so that bad things don't happen. The good people, right. But she wouldn't like that God herself. But that's what she really wants is something to control and make everything good. Well, something I've never understood, and nobody's ever explained it to me to understand it, 
is. Well, don't look for any help today. <laughs> Not from here, anyway. Knowing what Satan would do, and nobody else is all knowing but the Godhead. So he had nothing to prove to the other worlds or anything. Knowing what Satan was going to do created him anyway. Knowing that because of Satan, all this suffering and stuff was going to take place, and all, and nobody knew but him. So why did he have to even create him to, to start all this? Sin was going to crop up sometimes. We don't know. That. Really? God created the people that are the creatures that started the sin, so just don't create them. And nobody would have known that he took a choice away from anybody because they would not have been created. That's because his whole nature is love. Then God, the Son, and the Spirit, and they one needed. Love and to love, you have to have others and more others. Because but he didn't have to create sinful others. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't. We don't know how long Satan was around before his pride was found in his heart. Was a flawed plan to provide freedom of choice. No, you can't love without choice. That's his very, very character. Well, okay, yeah. I mean, I think we've concluded fairly concretely in here that love cannot exist without freedom. Exactly. So that that answers part of the question about the creation. Of course, I have to remember that you know God doesn't see like us. But I think her question is, why wouldn't he at the very beginning create a being that he knew wasn't going to rebel against him? Is that correct? He would have that's exactly right, and that's that. Well, I think that's a mystery we won't know until we get to heaven. But a, hang on, a, there was a hand in the back. Let me get to that. I, I think it strikes at the nature of liberty and freedom for God to look into the future, say, "Oh, this person is going to rebel against me and going to cause great suffering, so I'm just not going to create him." Imagine the conflict in God's heart throughout eternity. Imagine the knowing the conflict. Knowing that he is picking and choosing who's going to be allowed to live versus the creature that he has, he wants to create, but, but just doesn't because he knows the creature is going to rebel against him. Well, see, when I look at that, and this is my stupidity probably, oh, so one creature is not created as opposed to these millions that have suffered and died because of the sin. Just don't create that one creature instead of all these millions that have died because of sin. I, I, it, I just don't really think anybody will explain that to me until I get to heaven because I've never heard something that satisfies my thinking. I don't think you're asking the question about why he created as much as you're asking the question, how did pride and sin even come if you didn't rear his upper head? If it's right. never happened, where did it come from? And and that's, never okay. that's, the, that's referred to as the mystery of iniquity. In that there, there is no rational, valid explanation for the existence of rebellion and sin. It can't be explained. It can't be rationalized. It can't be justified. Yes, sir. I think all of us here know that the story's not over. So we can't just say there was a lot of suffering and everything. People have died. In the end... We have no clue what's gonna what what joy there's gonna be in heaven, and and it's nothing like we we could ever imagine. Thank you. Well said. You know, Scripture says that if we could see the end from the beginning, we wouldn't have it no other way. I was going along with that. I was thinking the same thing. We don't know. We have no idea how sin started or what brought it about. And 
I could personally drive myself crazy trying to figure it out. But we do have to keep in mind that we don't know and we don't know the end when Christ comes and that joy that we will have. I think that we, having lived in this simple world, having to wrestle with this and see the suffering, will be so much... I think we might be able to experience a greater love for God than maybe some of the other worlds are able to because they haven't seen how horrible sin is. Oh, God, clearly. I mean, you know, you're getting back to the quote, you know, those who have been forgiven much love much. Right. Okay? Unfallen worlds, they haven't experienced God's forgiveness. The angels haven't experienced God's forgiveness. They've looked at it, they've watched it, and it's a mystery. And Paul, I think Paul says that we will, we will explain this to the angels. And for me, like when I went as a missionary in Palau, was hard there. It wasn't as easy as it is here, just everyday things. But now, being back, I'm more grateful. And I'm very grateful for that experience because it made me a more grateful person now. Mm-hmm. And so I think in the future, we'll be almost grateful for the suffering we've had here because it will make us a more grateful then in the future. Mr. White tells us that we should be thankful for the things that we've that we struggle with. Mm-hmm. Yep, scripture tells us that it was through suffering that Christ developed a perfect character. Mm-hmm. To wrap things up, I want I do want to look at Wednesday's lesson again. Second paragraph. On the cross, God experienced something he had never experienced. Quote, the penalty, the penalty for sin. It was necessary for the awful darkness to gather about his soul because of the withdrawal of the Father's love and favor, for he was standing in the sinner's place. The righteous one must suffer the condemnation and wrath of God, not in vindictiveness, for the heart of God yearned with great sorrow when his son, the guiltless, was suffering the penalty of sin. This sundering of the divine powers will never again occur throughout eternal ages. This is from SDA Bible Commentary. So the righteous one suffered the condemnation and wrath of God. Correct? I mean, once we understand what the wrath of God is, it's the it's the turning away, it's the giving up to one's own choices. I think the condemnation is the supply there. Then if they have a wrong view of wrath, then condemnation naturally follows. Was he condemned? He was well, he was condemned by evil men. I don't know that Did did God remove his love yeah. and favor from yeah. his son? No. No. God still loved his son. But he gave him up to his own choices. Right. Because of love. Right. Not a withdrawing of love, which is what we take wrath to be. A withdrawing mm-hmm. of favor, of, of love, of, mm-hmm. of selflessness. Right. And becoming selfish and saying, you owe, you pay. Right. Right. So condemnation, basically, is selfishness. Mm-hmm. Think, think a little bit about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, what they struggled with when Christ was hanging on the cross. I mean, the struggle to to go down and intervene to stop that must have been uh, overwhelming. And the angels, you know, they're seeing their commander nailed to a tree. I don't think they understood why God was wasn't intervening. Why isn't He stopping? To, why isn't He going to prevent this? It's just to think that if Christ had even thought. To destroy this, even thought, I sometimes think I can't control everything, I think. Yeah, really. <laughs> and just in thought, he could have done that and he didn't. Right. That's hard to even comprehend. Yeah. Well, it's even harder to comprehend that 
it was entirely in his humanity that he struggled with this. To do that. To do it because, you know, the father had had separated, uh, you know, at the time he was hanging on the cross. And Christ was, in his human nature, defeated the desire to save self. I know, it boggles the mind. I... I, I think we'll spend the rest of eternity uh, learning and comprehending and pondering it. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Father, we want to thank you for for going to such great lengths to win us uh, back to a knowledge of your character and to trust and acceptance and to atonement. Uh, please continue to guide this class uh, and this church and uh, continue to reveal uh, your wisdom and your character to us uh, so that we may hasten your coming. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you all. Thank you, Russell.